hope you still have your Bibles open to Acts 13. We will be referring to, the, to some passages there. And I don't know if you noticed a change in the front of the listening guide, but we're starting a new series, what it means to be sent out. And the reason we're starting a new series is because we see a significant change in our study. As we've been going through the book of Acts, we saw Christ Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection and his appearance to the disciples and how that he commended them for his work to continue on. But not to continue on without divine power, without divine guidance, without God's Holy Spirit moving and working, even though Christ was ascending to the Father. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit has come. And we have the same Holy Spirit that we had at creation. It's not a new thing, but it is a new way of relating to our eternal God. Where before the Holy Spirit had been with and would come and go. Now Jesus already told his disciples in John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit shall be in you and dwell within you. We saw the miracle of Pentecost. We saw the gospel preached. We saw thousands come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior as they repented. And as evidence of their repentance, as they followed him in obedient baptism and praying for one another, fellowshipping together, going from house to house, listening to the teaching of the apostles, there have been some arguments. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, we saw how that there were some people who were underserved and how that they responded so well and so biblically by making sure that the whole entire congregation, led by, of course, these six good and godly and spirit-filled men, ministered and didn't leave anybody out of their ministering while the disciples committed themselves to preaching and teaching and we've seen the gospel spread in Jerusalem and then Samaria we saw Philip speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch and certainly through him traveling to Africa we saw persecution come and the result of persecution was the believers were scattered and as they were scattered Jesus had already told them you remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8 after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me, of me, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so, moving them out of Jerusalem, persecution came. And when, when Saul's persecution came, and later Herod's persecution came, we see Christians being scattered, preaching the gospel. We see the big transition that takes place from a Jewish-Christian congregation to now a Jew, Gentile, no differentiation between Jew and Gentile, between any nationality, any ethnicity, any language group, any color of skin, any country of origin. There's no difference. The Holy Spirit has come and has poured out dem demonstrably upon different groups of people, symbolizing that the gospel is for all people, and God's church is made up of all people everywhere, and that he calls to himself that he redeems and that he saves. And so it's a significant sea change, life change, on the part of the church. I don't know what you know about the condition of the church in Greenville, South Carolina, but I want to share with you just a little bit. When we talk about capital C Church, we're talking about the church universal. We're talking about every person everywhere who has been saved, who has been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, who has con confessed and repented. Every person who has a relationship with God, every person that's really been brought from death to life, from darkness to light. Every person, every believer is a part of God's church. But God's plan is always to unite members. First Corinthians twelve eighteen says, He sets you in the body as it pleases Him. It's to unite members in local bodies. And so our custom, our tradition here is we have 
this church and that church, Dunning Baptist Church in West Greenville and Brandon and Woodside and Pendleton Street and Origins. We have churches uh, of all different stripes and colors identified as a church. And I don't know what you know about the health of the church in Greenville, but I do know the, the group that I am associated with, that we are associated with to the church, the Southern Baptist Churches in this community. We have about 120 Southern Baptist Churches in the Greenville Baptist Association. Some of those are really making a difference in their neighborhoods, in their communities. But there are some of those who are not. About 72% of all churches of mainstream, mainline denominations in Greenville are in plateau or decline. And we've all been part of churches or seen churches that had lost their fire, had lost their passion, had lost any sense of, of God's moving and working in the life of a congregation. And a lot of that is simply because we forgot what we're here for. We get in a place and we get comfortable. We get focused upon ourselves and our needs. We get the things that we need to make us feel comfortable and complete and cared for. And we lose sight that God has a purpose for us beyond those who are in the building. As a matter of fact, God places us in a location together only to equip us and to teach us and to, to uh, grow us, to develop us, and to help us catch a passion for him that translates into a passion for those who do not know him. When Scott read the passage a little while ago, I don't know, did you get the five names? The church in Antioch was one of those churches. It had been born out of persecution. The Christians that were in, then they were Jewish Christians that were in Jerusalem when the persecution came. They went to a different location. Some of them went to Antioch. And there in Antioch, they began to preach not only to the Jews in the synagogue, but they began to talk about Jesus to Gentiles. And all of a sudden, God's joined them together, and these believers are coming together, and there are some from Cyrene, and there are some from Cyprus, there are some from uh, Alexandria, there are some from the Ptolemies, there are some from Rome, they're from different places, and they have different cultures, and they have different backgrounds, and yet they're gathering together as a church. When Barnabas goes and he sees how God is working, that people are being saved that the safe people are being fed and taught and nourished, that this is a healthy congregation with signs that things are taking place that only God can do. He's excited, and he wants them to grow. And so he goes and finds Saul, who used to persecute the church, but for 10 years, God's been preparing him for what comes next. He goes and finds Saul in Tarsus, and he brings him back to Antioch. And for a year, for a year, Paul and Barnabas teach there. And invest their lives there. Now, they aren't the only teachers there. There are other good and godly leaders of the church, elders, teachers, who invest in their lives of these people. And the church at Antioch was growing, and it was strong. And while they were worshiping, and while they were praying and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, God gave them a very clear instruction. I want you to set aside Saul and Barnabas. And I want you to send them out, set them apart for the work to which I have called them. And so the church began to fast and they began to pray. Is this what God has said? This is what God has said. What is our next step? And their next step was obedience. But who were the leaders of the church at this time? It's interesting to me. It's fascinating. There was, of course, Barnabas. There was Simeon, who was called Niger. By the way, Niger is Latin for black. 
he was probably an African from the area close to sub-Saharan, the area close to where it is called Nigeria today. There was Lucius of Cyrene, Menang, the member of the court of Herod. This was an economically wealthy man. He was literally raised with Herod. And of course, there was Saul, who we will see becomes called Paul. And by the way, don't get stuck on the name. I may call him Saul or Paul randomly. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. All right, that's the significance there. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. And now he's beginning this ministry more intentionally to the Rome. But I want you to see what could have happened just really quickly to the church in Antioch. They could have said, we're doing great. Look at the crowds. We've got classes. Our home groups are filled. People are being fed and people are being nourished. I'll bring it to contemporary society. We like the music and the music program. The fellowship is sweet. We, you know, there is so much to enjoy about this church. We need to protect it. And we need to do whatever is necessary to make sure we don't lose any of this. But that was entirely opposite from what happened. Granted, they enjoyed their fellowship. Don't misunderstand me. And there is a role in protecting the fellowship and the teaching and the Christian life as we live life together and invest our lives in one another. But they were led by God to send people out. An external focus. Now, they were reaching out in their city. They were reaching out throughout Antioch. But they were also recognized that there's this uttermost parts of the earth component to this mission. And God told them, now's the time. Send them out. And I guess the first thing I want you to, to, to really get a grasp of is that the church has a purpose beyond our local assembly. Understand, the church is the local assembly of God. All but three times in the New Testament when the word ecclesia or church is used, it's used in the context of a local group of believers. And the church is God's plan for bringing glory to himself and for making disciples and reaching the world with the gospel. But the purpose of every church is first upward. It's to glorify God. Paul in his doxology in Romans says, For from God and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. In 1 Corinthians, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, he says all the things you do, the expression of your life, the mundane things, what you eat, when you stand up and sit down, all of the decisions of your life should be built around and should answer the question, does this glorify God or not? We are to glorify God in all things. And so there's that upward focus, there's that inward focus, that passion to teach the Word of God, to help people follow after Christ. It's Paul's passion that we see even developed more as he is more engaged in this ministry. And when he wrote to the church at Colossae, he said, We proclaim Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, in order that we have a goal here, that we can present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toll, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works with in me. And we know, we have the great commission to, as you go, therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We have a commission. Every church's mission is to glorify God. Every church's mission is to make mature disciples. And every church's mission is to go out 
It's to be sent out, to recognize that we are ambassadors for Christ. It's to make a difference in our communities, in, in our world. Our mission is to glorify God by making mature disciples of all nations, starting in the West End. And I, I, we're just going to talk here for a minute, okay? <laughs> I may leave the outline. Will you all be mad if you don't fill in all the blanks? How mad will you be if we don't fill in all the blanks? Go ahead and put the first answer on the screen, if you don't mind, just for those of you who have to. We need to make sure that we have a continual passion for the gospel. We need to make sure that we love God so much and have His heart so much, that we are yielded to Him and following Him so much, that we are not corrupting His work in the world. And His work, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. God's work from creation was redemptive in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this massive plan. The All of Scripture focuses upon God's redemptive work in the world. And it is so easy. It is so easy for us to focus on good things and miss that which matters most. We can be passionate about a lot of things. How many of you are passionate about college football? Do we have anybody here that was passionate about college football? I'll just throw this out there. Wasn't yesterday an interesting day? I did something we don't normally get to do, Suzanne and I did. We sat down and had an afternoon of football. It was great. But the enthusiasm, I was sitting there looking at that crowd. I was watching the crowd at uh, Texas A&M Stadium. 106,000 people gathered there to watch 22 people play football. 22 people at a time play football. And I was just thinking, I was enthusiastic, by the way. I, I, don't, I wasn't pulling for anybody, but I was pulling against somebody. <laughs> and we'll just leave that there. But I was just thinking as we were sitting there, and it, look at that crowd and their enthusiasm and their passion. And I'm not belittling that. I'm good with that. But here's my problem with my own heart and with the typical church that gathers in a local assembly on Sunday morning, there is a greater contest. And there is a greater one to celebrate and a greater one to give glory to. And granted, that is an event, the football thing, is an event on the field at one time for a limited period of time. All of our lives are to be passionately in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has to be nurtured and it has to be maintained. And we need to, as a congregation, continually, as we fall in love with Him, recognize that He's given us a purpose, that He's given us a mission, that we glorify Him. How do we glorify Him? By being obedient to Him, in making mature disciples, in loving Him first, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, the great commandment. In making disciples the great commission, by teaching them all the things that He taught us, by uniting them to a body. There's this upward, inward, and outward expression, and we have to be continually fueling our passion for God, for Jesus Christ, for the Holy Spirit, God who is passionate for the world. And so off they go. Here go Paul and Barnabas, and they go on the first missionary journey. This is, if you're looking at maps, this is Paul's first missionary journey. They don't go very far. They travel from Antioch over to the coast, from Antioch over to the coast of Seleucia, and there they set sail, and they go to an island called Cyprus. Now, they were already 
Cyprus has already been mentioned in Scripture. Cyprus was where Barnabas was from. You remember Paul and Barnabas who are going back to Cyprus now on an evangelistic journey? In Acts 4.36, when we see Barnabas' generosity, it says, Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. This was where he was from. This is where he had come from. So he, to some extent, is going back to his home, hometown, his home island The gospel had already been proclaimed there, and likely churches had already been established. In Acts 11, which we already read, from that persecution, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to the Jews, speaking the word to no one but the Jews. And of course, not only are there believers in Cyprus, not only are there probably, even though it's not explicitly identified, congregations of people there who are gathered together in worship, those congregations are sending people out. In Acts eleven twenty, the next verse, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, and they spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. They spoke to the Greek people in Antioch. So, from Cyprus, there was a witness who came to Antioch. Antioch has now been established, lives are being changed, and they're sending out missionaries, and where's the first place they go? They go right back to Cyprus. And this missionary journey is not to strengthen churches. It's not to, to, to help the existing ministries there. This is strictly in Paul and Barnabas' heart and mind and behavior an evangelistic trip. They never lost their passion for the gospel. As a matter of fact, because they had that passion, in this trip, by the way, their whole journey lasted about 895 miles. If you just track that out on the map. You can travel about 15 miles per day if you're traveling across land. And so it was not just a week-long short-term mission trip. This was a journey, but it was not their longest journey. And we'll see that he moved quickly from place to place. But even as they went, they were committed to consistently communicate the gospel, which if you're filling in blanks, go ahead and write that down. They were committed to consistently communicate the gospel. Now we'll see more clearly in the next message in this series when they arrive in Antioch of Pisidia, a different town with the same name, We'll see what they communicated in the contents of the gospel. But for now, our focus is simply that they accurately, clearly, and enthusiastically talked to people about Jesus. They started in the synagogues, but they didn't stay there. They went from place to place. When they arrived at Salamis, this is only island, verse 5, They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, so they went through the whole island. They traveled from the eastern side across the island to the western side. And now we have a focus. And by the way, one of the reasons that I, one of the things I think that is a great benefit for us studying this passage is we're sent. You're sent. I'm sent. Pendleton Street Baptist Church. We have a mission that God has given to us. And just in case you missed it a while ago, our mission clearly stated is to glorify God by making mature disciples of all nations. And we have a target, folks, starting in the west end of Greenville. And maybe we've lost a sense of this, but let me just talk to you for a minute, pastor to people. In 1889, God laid it on some godly men's hearts that the west side of Greenville 
across the Reedy River needed a gospel witness. It was a growing community. There weren't any paved roads. There wasn't even a bridge across the Reedy River. But there were households being established. Several of them have been members of our congregation. But the Ware family was over there. And they become important because they donated land for this congregation to meet. But until then, Anderson Street Mission started on the second floor of a grocery store. And they began to gather and to pray for God to use them to establish a church, to meet the needs, to share the gospel with the communities on the West End. Now, that was at the turn of the century, a century ago. That was 130-something years ago. And God established Pendleton Street Baptist Church for the purpose of reaching West Greenville at that time. West Greenville with the gospel. Through the years, that community changed and that community transitioned. It began to grow, as you know. All of Greenville grows and continues to grow. And World War II, there was a population boom. The textile mills were flourishing. We were the world leaders in textile development. There were mill communities, Brandon, Dunning, Woodside, all these communities that were established. Mill community, houses built by the mills and moving in workers. But over where... Our congregation gathered where the Ware family donated to us. There was a lot of World War II returnees coming from home. A lot of those houses, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Sears kit houses. You guys know what I'm talking about, craftsman style houses. A lot of those houses were ordered from Sears and Roebuck. I don't know if you knew that or not. But they would become house and house and house and house. And God laid upon the leaders of this church at that time. It was Benjamin Davies Hahn, and he was followed by Dr. Dean Crane. Furman University was just down at the bottom of the hill. They already combined with Greenville Women's College. And they had a passion led by their leaders to reach that whole neighborhood and that whole community with the gospel. Jean Hudson used to live across the street from the back door of the church. Her and her sisters would be at their house. By the way, today's her 88th birthday. You may want to join me in wishing her a happy birthday when you get a chance. Happy birthday. But she lived with her sisters, and they would walk across the street and come to worship there at Pendleton Street Baptist Church. And she's not the only one. Betty Cresswell lived down there. Many, somebody, I don't know if, who's in the room. I can't see everybody. But a lot of people would walk, and they would gather together. And, man, God was preached, and the Bible was taught. And, and, and he was glorified in what took place. A lot of lives were saved. We had a member of the church who came to visit on a Sunday night before they were a member because they wanted to know what was going on at Pendleton Street. And they wanted to hear Dr. Dean Crane preach. I don't know if any of you can relate to this or not. They said they walked in on the back row on a Sunday night in the old sanctuary. And the sanctuary was full, but they were having a baptismal service. And Dr. Crane didn't preach because they baptized 38 people at the baptismal service. All right, now, I'm going to just identify that as a reality that was taking place in that day at that time. But let me tell you that we lost traction along the way. As the years passed, and I mean decades, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, the community transitioned and moved away, and many of our members transitioned and moved to the suburbs and moved to far places like Easley and Traveler's Rest and Simpsonville and Fountain Inn and Taylor's and just went to, honestly, just to 
the neighbor the the suburbs and so people began driving in so there was less it was no longer neighbors walking together with church to church and so a lot of those houses sold and there was some neighborhood transitions take that took place i really need to move on this but it's important i think that we get this somehow we spent about 27 years disconnected significantly from the community where we would gather we would drive in and we would worship and we would go home and work and live and drive in and worship and go home and work and live and drive in and worship and go home and work and live and were it not for basically about four men who maintained a ministry in that community to neighborhood children through the gym and through other things we would have been significantly disconnected from the neighborhood and I thank God for them and I thank God for that work. And then as the years passed, all of a sudden, that ministry began to grow. But things changed. And somehow, it is my conviction, and I think that everything carries this out, we lost our purpose to reach our community with the gospel, to glorify God, to make mature disciples of all nations, starting in the West End. And folks, our heart, my heart, has never been released from the West End neighborhood and the West End community. And you may think, well, then why are we on Orchard Park Drive? And I believe that we're here in preparation and training to reach the communities that God's placed us in now for the time when we are physically back there. But we don't have to wait. As a matter of fact, we must not wait we all need to get in our minds that we must continually fuel our passion for the gospel and we must consistently communicate the gospel yes where you work and yes in your families and yes where you live but also yes on the west end of greenville now without delay with opportunities as god provides us opportunities as we walk into those opportunities obediently we need to recognize that we are the ones who are sent out. Now, what happens when you're sent out? Well, what happened to Paul and Barnabas when they were sent out? They had John Mark with them. They went, and when they got to Paphos, they met a Sergius Paulus who invited them. Now, Sergius Paulus was a proconsul. He was a Roman leader in the area who was over the island, but he was over the island where there was not a Roman military force. That's why he was a proconsul. And he was curious about this message. He wanted to learn this message about God that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. But there was another man who was there. And his name was Bar-Jesus. Now, this is interesting. I don't know if you know anything about Jewish. He was a Jewish man, but he was a Jewish magician. And the name that he adopted was Son of Jesus or Son of Joshua. Jesus or Joshua, same name, means God saves. All right? And so that was how he identified himself. Well, as Paul is preaching and teaching and he's talking to Sergius Paulus and Barnabas is there, all of a sudden this guy whose name, his proper name was Elymas, E-L-Y-M-A-S, which means magician. By the way, this is like an astrologer. Uh, It's not the first magician we ran into. You remember the magician Simon Magus that we ran into in Acts chapter 8 up in Samaria? It's not the last magician we're going to run into. We will see Paul keeps encountering them along the way. And every time we encounter someone with this title, it it is a sorcerer, if you will. It is someone who has spiritual influences in a community that are ungodly, that are demonic, that work against the clear teaching of God. 
And we see that characterized here. They preach, Sergius Paulus is listening, and then we've got opposition. And what he does is he seeks to oppose and corrupt what they're saying. You remember the text, verse 8, Elymas, Salimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of the name, opposed them because he had a goal. He was seeking to turn Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, away from the faith. He was actively working against the gospel. Listen, you need to, as you are sent, be prepared by anticipating opposition to the gospel. When we have a passion for gospel, express to our passion for Christ, when we are faithful to communicate the gospel, you need to understand that there are going to be those who oppose the gospel. I want to go quickly here because we know this. There's opposition from our own heart. We don't want to make a fool of ourselves. We don't want to take the risk. We don't want to risk offending someone. There's opposition from professing believers, other churches. By the way, there's some things that I am passionate about <laughs> that apply to churches. And, and I, I want to make one of them clear here. You guys remember the story of William Carey, the English missionary who God called and he carried the gospel to India? William Carey argued in his day in England that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of all times. And he castigated his fellow believers. He fussed at his fellow church members and church leaders of his day for ignoring the Great Commission. Here's what he wrote. Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. We're at ease at home. And we're not caring for those that God's called us to care for even in other countries who are lost in their ignorance. He met with a group of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s and he had been recently ordained. He stood to argue for the value of overseas mission, of them sending missionaries to languages, where the, to locations where the gospel had not been proclaimed. An older members, minister present in the meeting interrupted him and said to him, quote, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Opposed by a fellow minister to the simple calling to send missionaries to proclaim the gospel. You may note, Carey did not stop in 1792. He organized a missionary society. And at its inaugural meeting, he preached a sermon with the call, Expect Great Things from God, Attempt Great Things for God. Within a year, Carey and John Thomas, a, a medical missionary, a former surgeon, and Carey's family, who he, now he had three sons and a daughter on the way, were on a ship headed for India. He not only exhorted them to go, he bought his ticket and he went. He faced opposition here at home. He faced opposition when he got on the field. There's something else that we need to grasp. There are, are churches and believers who oppose new churches being planted, who oppose ministry efforts in their neighborhood and in their community. Some of them are fairly simply just territorial. This is our area. God's called us to reach it. You go somewhere else. In 1962... I think, 63, 
the Greenville Baptist Association contacted Pendleton Street Baptist Church to go help plant a church in the Taylors area. Papa Joe was one of the leaders of that team. Joe Clement was his name. Uh, And he recorded the discussion in the minutes of the church. As I was reading through those, um, they had a group together. They had finances put in place. They had a location set ready to meet. And a church in that neighborhood sent a letter to them formally requesting that they cease and desist because God already had a church sufficient to reach the people in Taylor's South Carolina. We can be closed to allowing God to do what God wants to do. Through those he is called, equipped, and is enthusiastic about, enthusiastic like William Carey, enthusiastic like we should be, and yet we should not yield to opposition. As a matter of fact, when you anticipate opposition, you persevere. Verse 9 says, Paul, who was called, Saul, who was called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. When Elimus was trying to, to lead um, Sergius Paulus away, Paul, this says that Saul looked at him right in the eye, stared at him, and here's what he said to him. You son of the devil. By the way, this was an identifier, not a curse. What was his name? Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. What's Paul saying? You're not. Let me make sure you know who you're really representing here. You're a son of the devil. As such, you're an enemy of righteousness. You are full of deceit and villainy. You are manipulating. You're a con man. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Will you not stop corrupting God's word and what God is saying? And then Paul, still filled with the Holy Spirit, stops him. And here's how he does it. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. He went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. I have often said from this pulpit, just speak the gospel to those who are willing to listen. If they're not willing to listen, let them go. In this case, not so. In this case, Paul continues to overcome opposition and to speak. But a couple of things we need to remember. Who was Paul speaking the gospel to? Sergius Paulus. Who had come in to disrupt the gospel message? Where Sergius was an intelligent man and willing to listen, Sergius Paulus... uh, Elimus was trying to disrupt the message. He was, Paulus, the consul, was wanting to listen and to hear. And Paul was acting under the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit. This was not a personal defense. This is not, you have offended me and I need you to get out of the way and I'm responding in anger. This is a removing an obstacle to the gospel which the Holy Spirit enabled him to do. The point is, when it got difficult and when he faced opposition, Paul didn't quit. And you and I need to recognize this also that we don't quit when it gets hard. We don't quit when we face opposition to being obedient to everything that God has called us to do. When Paul was later writing to Philippi, the church at Philippi, he is telling them to be strong in the gospel. He says, let your manner of life of the go- be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm not there, I'm absent, that I can hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
We need to anticipate opposition, but in our opposition, we need to rejoice that we can persevere through the power of God who works within us. Now, I don't know what kind of opposition we're going to face. I don't know what kind of opposition you're going to face. As you be obedient to the gospel of Christ, but I will tell you this, there's no one this side of heaven that is beyond the reach of God's grace. God can do amazing things. I want to point out just a couple of things really quick. You remember who's preaching here. His name is Saul, or now he's called Paul. He'll be called Paul primarily from this point forward. When Elimus, when Bargesus, Elimus, the magician, sought to interrupt me, Paul said, you're a son of the devil. You're disrupting the clear word of God. You're being an obstacle to his, to his witness. Could Paul relate to that personally? Paul had been a terrorist. Paul had sought Christians and sought to put them in jail. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, what did Jesus do to his eyesight? Took it away. He was blinded for a time led by the hand in order that he might clearly understand God's work and God's mission for him. What is happening here with with this opposer to the gospel? By the power of the Spirit, you're going to be blind and you're going to be blind for a time as one who is opposed to the gospel. I believe that Paul, at least to some extent, could have seen himself in that man. And this is a punishment from God. This is a judgment, a miraculous judgment from God. But I believe this one is one with mercy, with the hope and expectation or at least the opportunity of repentance should he respond in repentance and faith. As we're passionate for the gospel, as we communicate it faithfully, as we face opposition and we continue to it, we need to be thankful for the fruit of the gospel. Sergius Paulus saw what Paul had done. Sergius Paulus heard what God had did, and he believed. He heard the word of God. He heard the message of Jesus Christ. And here, this Roman ruler of Cyprus has given his life to Christ. And who knows what impact he had. There are other Christians on the island. There are people for him to be connected with. But we have a testimony of a changed life because of a faithful witness under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And not only should we expect the fruit of the gospel, we should understand that our faithfulness and our fruitfulness are designed to glorify God. Not ourselves. Not to build our reputation. Not to build our name. Not to make us feel good about ourselves or to pat ourselves on the back. Our purpose, our, our reason for existing is to make sure that God gets all the glory. First trip. First trip. It was not a long one. Just under a thousand miles. A lot of it over land, some of it by sea. But he walked around the churches, and went straight to the people that didn't know the gospel. And there, they spoke the gospel, and they proclaimed the gospel. And it wasn't always welcome. There were always some who would listen. There were some that God had prepared their hearts. There were always some who were receptive to the gospel, and that God saved. He had drawn them. He had opened their eyes. He had granted them repentance, and they became believers. But there are others who were at every, there, there are some who are just apathetic, not for me. 
Do what you want to do. You be you. I'll be me. Go your own way. There's some just apathetic. But there are some who, because we have an enemy who is supernatural, because there is a Satan, an adversary, who is a roaring lion, walking around, seeking whom he may devour, because there is a God of this age who does not want God to be glorified. He stands in opposition to God. We need to understand he's subservient to God. God is one, but we do have an enemy. There is going to be opposition. Here's the thing. The opposition is permitted by God who wants to strengthen our faith in him. The opposition is one of those trials that we get to face when we get to see God doing things only God can do. Like giving us courage to speak clearly. Like giving us courage to give up our time and energy and effort to go be a part of a local expression of ministry in a church. To reach a community with the gospel of Christ. We persevere in the gospel. And we trust God for the fruit. Praying that in all things, God receives the glory. Now what we're going to do is we're going to take the next several weeks and we're going to look at just two more messages. We're going to look at this whole missionary journey in two more messages. Well, actually three. We're going to see where Paul stops along the way and the interaction that he has. And this isn't just a history lesson. I know that you all love history and it keeps you on the edge of your seats. But this isn't just a history lesson. This is an example of how God works through his children to make an eternal difference in the lives of the communities that he calls them to and that he sends them to. Isn't God good? Aren't you glad that we can be prepared for the pattern of a church on mission so that we can be faithful to the mission that God's called us to and not be caught off guard and not be surprised. What is the pattern? The gospel proclaimed. Opposition comes. We persevere in the gospel. God brings the fruit and God gets the glory. That should be the pattern of our lives and it should be the pattern of our church. I'm grateful that God's moving. These are exciting days for us. I'm grateful that God's moving and working in us here and now. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the example of this missionary journey. Thank you for a church that cares, for a church that is focused upon being obedient to you. Thank you for a congregation that desires to glorify you. And I pray that you will keep us ever, ever leaning into the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we will not miss our opportunity to talk to people, to develop relationships with people, to connect with our communities, to get to know them, to build trust, to gain a hearing in some way that we might speak the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ into their life. And Father, for those who are intelligent, as Sergius Paulus has described, and who are open and who want to hear those who are being exposed to these claims in this way for the first time, our prayer is that you will give us clear communication, but you will give them clear understanding and illumination, and that you will reduce the opposition. But when we face the opposition, help us to remain strong, Help us to remain filled with grace, with a hope of redemption, and yet unwavering in the mission that you have given to us. Father, we are praying for fruitfulness. We want to see lives changed. Lives changed on a large scale. We want to see person by person, family by family, lives connected with you, being forgiven of sin, families being restored. Father, we want you to be glorified in what takes place in us. 
In your name I pray. Amen. <music>